Today's guest is Lauren Maffeo. She's the author of Designing Data Governance from the Ground Up that's published through the Pragmatic Programmers. She's a service designer at Steampunk, which for those of you who are not familiar with Steampunk, they do human-centered design uh, within the federal space. They do a lot of work for the federal government. Uh, she's the founding editor of Springer's AI and Ethics Journal and an adjunct lecturer of interactive design at the George Washington University here in DC. And on top of all of that, Lauren is a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts, which I had to go look up. It's very fascinating. I recommend it. They're a big organization where they're trying to bring ideas together to do big changes. So that's that's kind of cool. So thanks for joining me today, Lauren. Thanks so much for having me, Jeremy. I'm excited to be here. So for those who have not met you in person, uh, had a chance to talk to you and get to know you a little bit, talk about your background, where you're from, who you are, and what you do. Sure. So I am from a town called Natick, Massachusetts, which is in the metro west area of Boston, about 12 miles outside the city. I was born and raised there, and my parents are still in the house that I grew up in in Natick. I first moved to Washington, D.C. for college. I went to the Catholic University of America in the Brookland neighborhood of D.C., and during my college years, when I really wanted to be a journalist more than anything, mm -hmm. I did a semester abroad at the University of Oxford in England. And that was not only my fir first study abroad experience, it was my first experience going abroad in general. And so I went from never having been outside the U.S. to visiting six countries in four months and wow. uh, taking trains to uh, country other countries and being in a new world within minutes. and that made a huge impression on me. So when I graduated, I, the long, this, I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this because the, the short version of a longer story is that I applied for a Fulbright fellowship at, and I, I was, my university recommended that I apply, consider applying. And I knew that if I did it, I wanted to use it to get a master's degree in, uh, in uh, the communications and media field in the UK. So I put my application together, spent a good part of my first semester senior year on it. And I didn't get the fellowship, but I, because I chose the most competitive one, but I, realized through the process of putting the application together that I really wanted to make it happen. So I, and when I was done with my Fulbright application, I basically had the application for grad school ready. So I decided to apply to a few programs in the UK and see if I could try my luck. I applied to three different programs for master's degrees and I was accepted to all three. Uh, and I ended up going to the London School of Economics and Political Science. So I moved to London the September after graduating from CUA. And while I was there, I still wanted to be in the media field, wanted to work in journalism. And when I finished my master's at LSE, I actually did do that for a year. I was able to network my way into the small but rapidly growing startup scene in London and Europe. And so I started doing freelance tech reporting for digital news sites like The Guardian and The Next Web. That's really how I got into tech. I never thought uh, when I was a student that I would work in tech, let alone that I would work as a 
state government contractor, which is technically what I do in my day job. And I really didn't think I would have written a book on data governance, but my first foray into the tech world was as a tech reporter. So I entered it the way I knew best. And then over time, I transitioned into working in the sector myself, first in marketing roles, and then as a business and research analyst, and then finally now as a service designer. That's amazing. So I want to roll that a little bit back. So did you always want to go into journalism media, like high school, you're graduating high school, that's where you, you just knew it? I did. I was able to do a internship with the local TV station in the town next to mine called Wellesley when I was about 16, 17. And I really enjoyed it. I loved being in a newsroom. I lo I loved uh, going out into, into the fields, they call it, and finding people to interview. Uh, I actually, my high school had a program where you could spend the last month of your senior year doing an internship somewhere. And so I interned at New England Cable News. And then uh, when I was in college at CUA, I got to spend a semester interning at New York One in New York City, which is another public uh, cable news station for New York City. And I really loved that environment. And I felt like the career path was a great fit for me and my personal interests. Unfortunately, I think we all know that the state of the media industry is pretty challenging is a kind word to say. Um, it's become almost like a gig economy job in a lot of ways. And I knew starting out in that industry that if I continued down that path, my my prospects were going to be pretty minimal. And I worried about the long-term effects that would have on my overall life, including basic things like saving for retirement and living in larger cities like I wanted to. And so I had to make some pretty tough decisions after that first year of freelancing to say, do you really want to keep doing this? And I did want to keep doing the work, but the industry was just not feasible. And it just continues to, in my opinion, go downhill in terms of viability as a career path. And that, that's pretty different even from when I was in high school, because in high school, you still had a viable career path if you wanted to choose it. But when I was in college, that's when we really started to see ad revenue shift from news and media organizations to tech companies like Facebook and Google. And uh, of course, that has just continued. Yeah, that's that's interesting. So abroad for your master's, I mean, that's pretty amazing. I mean, I, I know a lot of people who do a semester abroad, especially if they're in political science or uh, like I knew somebody in a negotiation type uh, career path and they all have uh, semesters abroad opportunities and it sounds like you really enjoyed your semester abroad and and, and and so you did it the whole degree in England how how was that as an American is the university a microcosm or is it more, uh, you know a lot of British how's that how's that work what I so LSE and this is one of the reasons I chose it is it is one of if not the most diverse student bodies in the world. At what I saw a statistic once that said that at one point LSE had more countries represented in its student body than the UN, uh, and and so that it was 
incredibly diverse in ways that I was not used to. And that was a, a more of an education than the actual coursework that I learned. And that's really what makes it so special to me. That's actually one of the reasons that I really enjoy DC. One, a lot of the things I enjoy about DC are things that I really appreciate about London and LSE, one of which is that diversity. DC is a more diverse area in terms of, for instance, geography than many other parts of the states. And likewise, LSE and London are both very diverse, respectively, as a school and a city. And so I loved being abroad. I, I will say that getting used to the British academic system when you're an American is a big change because you have a lot less work that is graded, but that means that your entire grade for a course can hinge on one final exam. So whatever you get on your exam is what you get for the course. And so there's really no room for error. And then on top of that, the grading system is completely different. So there's no such thing as getting in the 90s in the UK. Uh, if you get a 70, that means that you've gotten a distinction and that's the highest grade you can get. And ve uh, very few people end up getting distinctions. It's much more common for people to get so a score in the 60s. That means that you've gotten a merit, but uh, of course in the States, that means that you've gotten a D. So <laughs> it's very different uh, that way. But I got uh, the real the real value in it for me was me, was the the classmates and friends that I made and then the diversity that I experienced for the first time uh, having gone to a pretty homogenous college and grown up in a pretty homogenous suburb as as most people do that was my first major exposure to that much diversity of thought and life experience and it really made a huge lasting impression the other thing i'll say is a big part of the reason why I did choose a master's degree overseas was the cost. Uh, many European Union countries will let you go and get a degree and at no fee. Um, so you have to pay your living expenses, but you don't pay tuition. That was not the case with LSE. LSE is actually quite expensive by British university standards. But when you're an American comparing those costs, it's a fraction of the cost. And so I only applied to programs in the UK. I didn't feel like going to a U.S. university would have been worth the money, but it it was worth it in the case of going to LSE. That's, you know, that's fascinating. I, I wish I could say I knew about that before. I lived in England for two years myself, which I'm yeah. sure we could have a whole conversation about. Yeah. And I did not know that about the university. So I knew I knew that it was definitely different and their, the flow into it is different and expectations are different and scoring is different, but I didn't know about the cost thing. I never really thought about it. It is drastically less expensive. Uh, and and but the the caveat too is that not only is it much less expensive for Americans, but they make much more off of international students than they do uh, British students. And so they're incentivized to be diverse that way. And so it 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 mutually benefits both parties, especially because people in DC at least know LSE and the value that it has, especially in the politics and development space, and especially, of course, economics. So it's it was well worth the investment. And I, I would say it was the best thing I ever did. All right. A hint, hint for me to pass on to others. Yes. So other than tech journaling, what was your first, quote unquote, you know, uh, a firm uh, technology role be, be after that? 
It's very common for former journalists to transition into marketing and PR roles, which makes total sense. The, the skill set is very similar. It's a very natural segue into another industry. And so I worked as a content specialist for a SaaS company, which is software as a service. They were based in Silicon Valley, but they were fully remote. And this was 2015. So this was years before COVID. This was years before just fully distributed workforces were a thing. And I worked from home uh, full time with a fully distributed team. I didn't have any uh, fellow employees in DC. Uh, so I was lucky to have a good amount of friends from college and grad school because I didn't have colleagues to see or go to happy hour with. And so that's a big reason why I started doing some volunteer work in DC because I didn't have those uh, work connections that many people do. But I enjoyed the autonomy that working from home brought. I also got to learn even more about the tech space, especially project, product management, because we sold product management software. So I got to learn more about product strategy and setting, setting a vision and, and tasks and milestones and how to measure them on a roadmap. And I was writing content about all of that stuff. And, and it was similar to journalism in the sense that as a journalist, you don't have to really be the expert on a topic. You have to find the right experts mm -hmm. to tell the right story. And in my case with product management, that was similar. It wasn't my job to be the expert on product management. I had to figure out from the CEO and other people at the company what the best practices were and then write content about it. So that was incredibly valuable. And then after and then after a bit, I transitioned to working at Gartner uh, in their small and mid-sized business unit where I, co I started covering trends in business intelligence. That's how I got into AI. And that's where my interest in AI techniques really developed. And then from there, I went to Steampunk, where uh, we're talking now in July 2023. And I've been here almost three years. It will be three years next month. Wow. That's an interesting path. I like that. And I think you stumbled upon a secret in technology. And that's anybody can figure it out, right? Yes. You want to focus I, your I time. do believe that. Yeah. In IT, you can do anything. You I, I, I've been in my career, I won't say I'm, I'm older now, but I've been in, but I've changed my career numerous times. I've done so many different aspects of IT and some of them had formal training and others did not. I just taught it my, to myself. And I, I like to tell, uh, I do a lot of early career mentoring. I like to tell them to, to leverage the University of YouTube, if nothing else. Yeah, it's very true. And I think the other thing to keep in mind that I would say is that every people in tech have their thing that they excel at, but no one in tech knows everything. And anybody who tries to insinuate that they do is just flat out lying. Uh, and the people who really excel at what they do are actually the first to say that they don't know everything. And the smartest of them all uh, find the best people who excel at what they don't excel at so that they can collaborate and work together. And I think that's worth emphasizing because in tech, it's very easy to feel overwhelmed like an imposter. For a while, I thought that you, if you were a coder, for instance, that you had memorized uh, all of the code in your language and that you just knew how to do all of it. And of course, if you have expertise in Python or JavaScript, you know the vast majority of the language, but code developers will tell you that they look stuff up and Google stuff all day, every day. And once you figure that out, it becomes a lot easier to try new things. 
Yeah. Yes. It's a big, it's a big thing. Uh, I see, I follow a lot of people on Twitter in the tech space and there's a lot of agitation if you're, you know, got 20 years experience and they're still trying to say in the interview, we need you to write some code on the fly. And then, and then it's not even great examples of code that you would ever write because I would go to Google and copy that code. Why am I it's writing? It's always that? code that you never would that you never even use on the job. Right. Yeah. Right. That is a challenge. So then, what brought you to writing the book? I mean, I could see with your journalist background, you definitely have the writing capability and the experience yeah. in writing. Uh, what took you the next step to writing a book? I was getting more and more interested in data as the backbone of AI, because the more I went down the AI rabbit hole as an analyst at Gartner, it became pretty clear to me that AI at its core really was data. And meanwhile, when I was at Gartner, there was a lot of uh, research that they would put out uh, talking about the state of data maturity in various organizations. And it, it was always a pretty grim picture. It was always quite low. It was, uh, and that has continued to stay the same, really. Meanwhile, the volume of data that is produced and ingested every day keeps increasing. And then when I joined a technical team myself, I became somebody who was working with organizations who were disseminating data, who were, were ingesting it and producing it day in and day out. And I saw for myself how immature the vast majority of organizations are in their data management practices. And the reality is that if you ignore data governance, if you and that that's an umbrella term for the people, processes, and tools that execute your data strategy. And many organizations don't have a data strategy. And so that backbone is just not there. And that makes it difficult, if not impossible, to do the fun stuff with data really well. Like you can't do cool, build cool new models. You can't try machine learning or natural language processing to spin up a new product if you do not have quality data that is governed that you don't, if you don't have pipelines built to support things like PII masking, which is personally identifiable information. If you don't do things like data lineage tracking, where you see which pieces of data are ingested through which pipelines and models, and there's really no visibility into it. And that is something that is a challenge. No, totally agree. And I, that's, I was really struck by your the title of your book, the ground up piece of it, right? There's so many people who don't, haven't started on it are just collecting data. They may be messing around with machine learning or AI to try to analyze the data in a small way, but you're right, data governance. I, I love this idea that you, know, you, that you wrote the book around because data governance is so fundamental to empowering all those other things. And I love that you picked up on the from the ground up piece of the title because that was my publisher's suggestion. I just wanted to call it designing data governance. And they made the case that it should be from the ground up to emphasize that it is meant to be a book for people who are new to the subject. And I wasn't sure how I felt about it, but then I was talking to other folks about the book and sharing the title and my thoughts on it. And they pretty universally said, I think that's a much better approach because if not for the from the ground up part, I would be 
too intimidated to read it because I wouldn't understand what you what you meant by that. But the from the ground up implies that it's a book that allows people to learn. And that ultimately is the goal. So that is what it, the book is. It's a hundred page six step guide to building uh, and designing your first data governance program from scratch. And there's a lot of variance in data governance. So how a big multinational bank does data governance is going to be incredibly different than from how to, a startup does it. But I would make the case that no matter the size of your organization, no matter the industry you're in, there are several key aspects of data governance that every organization needs to prioritize. And that's really where the book comes in. It's meant to be the prelude to anything else you would read more specific uh, regarding data governance. No, I love that. Fantastic. And and I've worked in a number of organizations and seen a number of organizations that could all use use some thought, um, some thought about how to establish that program. Not not where I currently work. I don't want to clarify that right away. <laughs> I'm getting in trouble, but uh, yeah. <laughs> then and then um the founding editor of Springer's AI and Ethics Journal, how'd that come about? Well, I'll clarify that I am one of the founding editors. So the journal started in 2020, and we have a pretty extensive editorial board. I think we have 30 plus members now. It was started, it was co-founded by Larry Metzger, who is based at George Washington University, actually. So it has somewhat local roots. And then his fellow uh, co-founder, John McIntyre, is with the University of Sutherland in the UK. And I saw, I can't remember actually how I saw that the journal was starting, but they, I managed to connect with Larry and uh, and John prior to the launch of the first issue. And so I got involved and mostly, mostly my role involves editing and reading manuscripts. So when someone submits a manuscript for prospective publication in the journal, I'm called upon sometimes to read the manuscripts, give feedback on them, and uh, give, an, give a review as to whether the article should be included in a future issue of the journal or if it should be accepted with provisions or if it should be rejected altogether. I also did co-author a piece with several fellow editors on uh, the concept of intellectual freedom in commercial companies. So especially in the AI space, there's this inherent tension between doing research on AI and working for a commercial organization that relies on AI to make money. That's a, a tension that I don't know and I don't know if it will ever fully be resolved, but it was, and it was actually written in response to what the way that one particular firm uh, treated several of its AI researchers when they exposed some potential risks in a large language model of the organization they worked for. And so we want, made a case for, for protections that would uh, affect people in those positions where they are doing research into a technology that their employer is working on. And of course, and again, that's an incredibly difficult position to be in. It's uh, often why uh, researchers stay in academia. The challenge is that much like journalism, academia and the career paths it provides are minimal at best. Uh, even if you're in a STEM field, uh, there is still, you know, you can, of course, make so much more in industry and there's a good chance, there's a great opportunity to contribute your knowledge to industry. But of course, there's always this inherent tension if you do work for a commercial enterprise, because at the end of the day, if they are, uh, if their business model is reliant on the technology that you're critiquing, that's an inherent risk. That would be, yes. I, I, um, 
as we talked before I started the interview, and I have some experience in the AI machine learning space. And one of the white papers uh, the organization I was volunteering with produced was on ethical AI and this whole idea about transparency on the algorithms and what's going on behind the scenes, right? The implicit bias that might be built into it or what, what makes up their, you know, how they do analysis. And it goes to this kind of core issue of can you trust, can you trust it, right? That's what it would be for these commercial entities. Can you trust the algorithm? And I would make the case on that on that subject of bias in AI that data governance is data ethics. If you are practicing data governance and you have a, a formalized initiative, that is its own form of ethics. Uh, in the book, I talk about a seven-step framework that Gartner put out about the seven foundations of any data governance framework, and one of them is ethics and transparency. You really cannot separate the two from each other, and you can't separate ethics and transparency from your data efforts. I still often hear people say things like, we'll do data governance later. And that's very adjacent to saying, uh, we'll, we'll be, they some variation of we'll be ethical later. We'll look at the models after we've shipped them. And uh, that the, that's convenient because uh, once you find bias in your model, your only recourse is to scrap it and roll it back to prior to the time prior to when you saw that bias in the first place. And so there is, if you have put out a biased algorithm, um, you have no recourse but to basically take it out of production if it is found to be faulty or unjustifiably biased. And in many cases, many of these algorithms are this is very new frontier for everyone. Um, and so everybody is trying to figure out exactly the best way to go about this. But I think it's also way overdue. I, I think we're, we as humans are inherently reactive more than proactive. And there have been many academics and researchers who for years, if not decades, have been talking about the risks that are inherent in uh, big data and specifically data that is not governed in any way. And uh, we, we see the consequences of those every day. We live the, with them every day. And so when people try to use the conversation to shift it towards, you know, autonomous robots. It's it's frustrating because it's it's really, first of all, absolving the people who create these technologies of responsibility. And second of all, it's ignoring the very real risks and uh, sometimes dangers that are inherent in uh, some parts of AI today when we don't know how it works. Ah, totally agree. We can have a whole conversation on that, the whole AI space and uh, so I appreciate that you've put out this book and that it's focused on, and I agree with you, data governance and ethics and transparency, all three of those are closely aligned and that's that's fantastic. Yeah. So as you've gone through your, your varied career, very interestingly varied career, what's something you've seen that you wish if, if you had the power, if they came to you, Lauren, and said, Lauren, you have the power today to make a change, or, or maybe the change is too large, today you have a, the power to make us all think about that change. What might that change be for you? I would change the process by which most federal government agencies hire their staff because if any and anybody who has used usajobs.gov before or has had to format a federal resume uh, knows what I'm talking about and the consequence of that horrific hiring process that most agencies use is that I I read a Washington Post article earlier this year which said that I think 64% of the US federal workforce 
is within three years of retirement and something like 8% is under 30 years old. And so there, I mean, there's a very practically an enormous problem that is going to hit the federal government very soon in terms of having the workforce needed to literally power the federal government. And then on top of that, it's, I think the there's a lot of misalignment between the incentives that attracted a certain type of person to the federal sector decades ago versus what today's workforce wants. And today's workforce really is not focused on pensions. Uh, I don't know anybody who could be coerced into working in the same job, doing the same thing for three decades or more for the same employer to get a pension, uh, because I don't think they have much faith that they even will get that pension the way that their parents did. And so that's no longer uh, the right carrot to dangle in front of the right audience. And so I think there's complete misalignment between what the federal government needs in terms of its workforce, what people want from careers today, and how to get the right people uh, to serve the federal government into those roles. And wow. that is something, and that's an incredibly complicated problem. Nonetheless, I think it's a really serious one. And if I had the power to change it, I I would certainly try. And some agencies do, I will say, like U.S. Digital Service, I know, mm -hmm. has a much more streamlined process that is much more simple. Uh, so it's certainly not every agency, uh, but way too many of them still rely on that old, outdated process. Yeah, the U.S. Digital Service, though, is limited by the fact that the people they hire are term limited right. under that process, which is probably what allowed them to use some of those more, uh, you know, government would say radical hiring processes and some classic right. HR person might say that. Nobody I know personally, of course. Yep, yep. But that's that's a very, you pick a big change. Uh, I've, been in, I've been in the federal government uh, for about 15 years, and I even moving as a federal employee from one agency to another is a complete nightmare in terms of just trying to get the interview or just trying to get uh, people to understand. But I like your point because uh, my, my daughter and I have done a whole generational analysis. Uh, she's a Gen Z, I'm Gen X, and we have uh, some kids that are millennials in between. And we have a lot of conversations about what the workplace uh, demands are from the different generations and you're absolutely right the, the the gen z who are the people we should be attracting for work uh, uh they have a completely different uh to, you know plan for what that looks like all the way down to how they want to be managed not just you know the whole remote work right i don't want to i don't want to be in an office or commute or whatever uh, or my benefit package and what my benefit package looks like but also how they're treated right and in this supervisor slash employee relationship is totally different than the other generations. It is. And I think the, you know, of course there's, there's, some good that comes out of structure and with, you know, I can't be somebody that's promoting data governance and then saying that we should just get rid of all like systems and structures uh, because one of the big resistance uh, rebuttals I get to data governance is that they resist that that form of, of governance and control, which many people see as a barrier to innovation. And it certainly can be. Uh, and so of course, rule, but of course, I think rules have their place. Having said that, I just, I think when you look at the statistics and you see the state of the federal workforce versus who is needed to make it run in the future, mm -hmm. 
we there's there's no doubt that it is going to have to change and it will change by virtue of necessity it's i think just a question of how long it takes and how painful the process is how painful that's the challenge right as how painful yep and i have stories but i i won't share them today so uh what's next what's coming up for you you you've done a lot of really interesting things uh and you've been at at steampunk for a while and i'm not saying you're going to leave steampunk but what's coming up for you well, I'm so I am currently co-writing a LinkedIn learning course that is based on the book uh, that I wrote. So that's very exciting. It is a course on how to design your first data governance program if you are starting from scratch. And it's going to be aimed at senior data leaders and organizations whose job it is to manage the strategy for their organization's data. And so we are, I'm in the process of writing that course now. It's already been approved and the tentative plan, if all goes well is to record it this summer uh, at their studios in California, and it is due to be released on the LinkedIn platform as a course in December. So that is the main thing uh, that I'm working on uh, alongside my full-time job at Steampunk. And then on top of that, uh, I am cur it's currently the summer when we're talking, so I have a lighter schedule, which is very nice. But I am planning on going back to uh, GW to be an adjunct lecturer again this fall. I did it for the first time this past spring semester and really enjoyed it and loved the students that I got to work with and, and loved Loved the opportunity to teach interaction design, especially to a generation of designers who are much more tech savvy and much more comfortable with tech than a lot of their older colleagues, but they still need some instruction on the human-centered aspect of design. And so I really enjoyed that even more than I thought I was going to, and I'm excited to hopefully return back to teach again in the fall. So those are the two big things that I'm looking forward to for, through the end of 2023, alongside of course, continuing to get the word out about the book because this is my first book and I am uh, agent free. I, I am a, and I'm a first time author, so I am using any and every avenue to get the word out about it. Well, I'm glad I was able to help with that. And you have a fascinating story and journey. And so thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Lauren. Thank you so much for having me. This was great.